Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I said all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Bernd Selheim, poet, novelist, and academic. He has taught creative writing and poetics at UTS and lectured philosophy at Macquarie University, where he completed a doctorate in phenomenology. Bernd is the author of Beyond the, Fa Beyond the Frame's Edge, his poetry collection, Awaken the Wheel, won the Federation of Australia Writers and Elder Poetry Award. Today we talk about his second novel, The Fatal Dance, and he's beaming in all the way from Canada. Welcome. That's a very impressive bio. Thank you so much. Like I know what philosophy is, but I was a bit stumped as to what phenomenology is, but I'm thinking they're quite similar. Can you well, explain phenomenology it? is, I, I suppose, a, a branch, particular branch of philosophy that comes around uh, the start of the 20th century. I mean, it really, its origins are a bit earlier than that, specifically with Eben Husserl. And it starts with asking questions to do with, you know, if, we, if we're trying to get to the meaning of what it is to, to be, to exist, we've got to start within the life world. So back to the things themselves is the great, uh, the great kind of quote that, that begins it. And it starts the tradition that then goes through, uh, you know, Martin Heidegger, the ex existentialism comes out of phenomenology. Mm -hmm. And so it really is to do with kind of grounding ourselves and grounding our more important questions, if you like, or those, those kind of vital questions of what it is to be within our experiences. Mm, I love that. And I'm sure that was the very uh, small elevator pitch of phenomenology, but thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm there are sure. a few more things to say, but not much. You know? I can imagine, I can imagine. I've almost got a doctorate in phenomenology now up to that. <laughs> Now, we are here to talk about The Fatal Dance, and it is just such a beautiful book. And I, I just want to tell you, and I put this on social media this morning, the first thing that struck me about it was the writing style. I just thought it was effortless and literary, and I read a lot of books. Right? I'm cracking about 80 to 100 a year, and I just love a book that has that kind of writing style that seems effortless. effortless. Now, we'll talk about that because I'm sure it wasn't effortless. <laughs> 
but um, we'll talk about writing style shortly but I just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed reading it because of that Thank you so much. That's very, very, very good to hear, especially because hardly anyone's read it yet. So no one's said that to you yet. So. <laughs> great, great. Oh, and this is your first interview about the Fatal Dance. This is really special. It's special for me, that's for sure. Yeah, me too. I'm going to put, that's why I said I'm going to put this interview out as soon as we finish talking because it's going to remain the first interview. <laughs> for listeners who, like you said, have not yet gotten their hands on this book, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what the Fatal Dance is about? Okay, so I suppose at its core, it's about a, a woman with Huntington's disease and her family. And so it looks at the, uh, the implications of the disease for her, as well as looking more broadly at kind of medical research and some of the kind of the interplay between, you know, the sciences and kind of, you know, whole plant remedies and kind of more broader holistic approaches to healing, perhaps. And it also looks, I suppose, at all of the kind of the questions of our moment now, which is, you know, is capitalism and the destruction of our world and, you know, some of these, these broader questions, which are brought to the fore by uh, our quasi-villain, uh, Redmond Campbell, who's a scumbag uh, real estate agent <laughs> who's desperate to get rich. And so he... he he drives a lot of the action within the novel. I mean, a lot of a lot of what happens is actually determined by uh, by Laurie, who's our Huntington's affected um, protagonist. But some of the more perhaps um, the the darker turns of the book are determined by Redmond, and he's a guy who doesn't see much value beyond the dollar. Mm-hmm. It was very funny this morning when I saw your video and you described Redmond as a scumbag and, you know, he is, but he's also, I really liked him and I don't know what that says about me, but he's deeply flawed and complex and I'm really drawn to people like that because I find them so interesting. So tell me how you balanced him being a scumbag, but also really interesting and almost kind of likeable to me. <laughs> That's great. Sorry, you just dropped out for a second. Um, Yeah, look, uh. I wanted to make him relatable. And also, I suppose, probably more to the point in terms of process, he was really fun to write. And it's a character that evolved over over several years. And as I got to know him and know the kind of things that he would do, he became more and more enjoyable to write. And I don't know about other writers. I certainly have talked to Tara and I know that you know, some of the darker elements of her books, my, my wife, uh, you know, it's, it's in the darkness that you find some of the most kind of the most fun. And in Red, the case of Redmond, I just felt like I had carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. You know, here's a guy who he doesn't really understand very much. He's, he's really only interested in money. At the same time, he's a guy who's at the end of his tether. So he's, he's kind, he's really been driven to some, desperate acts you might say in some respects but he's, he always has a choice in those acts so he's you know he's a scumbag but at the same time he's he's my scumbag I, <laughs> I don't know what it says about me if I related to him so we won't, we won't explore that but I, I could see that you know when I'm reading a book I can't help but think about you know the author that's just how my brain works and I just thought and I'm so glad you said it that you must have had fun writing him because I felt that when I was reading his character I had so much fun. Yeah, I mean, the opening chapter 
or the, the opening chapter of Red's opening chapter, I just, you know, I worked and reworked that so many times because I was so enjoying this kind of, you know, what you would call a phenomenological moment. So you've got someone there just experiencing the world in a very specific way, but it's also someone there just kind of waking up hungover and annoyed and his wife just gone into prison and there's a mosquito trying to sting him and it's all you know so there's a way in which it's, it's, it's kind of I suppose with a book about something like Huntington's I found it it was it was really important and one of the most difficult aspects was you know how do you get the lightness in there mm. you know it, it's got to be it's still got to be a romp it's still got to be playful it's, it's still got to move along and it's still got to have a reader who's moving through and saying, God, what's going to happen next? You know, to some respect, I mean, you know, it's not a, a, a perhaps a kind of typical plot-driven narrative in, in some respects, but I still, those questions are still really important, you know, narrative matters. Mm. And so Red's the guy who kind of pulls things through in many respects and you kind of like him and you kind of hate him. Yes, exactly, exactly. But nonetheless, interesting and you want to keep reading about his journey. But that's the other thing I really liked about this novel is that you can read it in many different ways because it has those layers. You can read it straight up as a romp, you know, like you just said, this great romp, these amazing characters. But then you can dig a little deeper. And what I really liked about the book is how you really focused about what we're going to do with the time we have right now in this moment. You know, we know that anxiety is caused about projecting into the future, my life story depression is caused by looking into the past and yet this book is about doing what are we going to do in this in this particular moment particularly if you're affected by something like Huntington's disease tell me about exploring that idea yeah look no you, you're absolutely right I mean the book opens with uh if I can say this it's the first chapter so I can I can probably give a spoiler I but the so. book opens with um with the uh with the attempted suicide of Laurie this lady who has Huntington's disease and um, and her realization within that is the preciousness of every single moment that we have. You know, it, it's not expressed in exactly those words, but that's that's more or less the gist of it. And you know, Huntington's is a is a terrible, really, really difficult disease, and it it affects people slowly. So, you know, in terms of anxiety is you looking into the future and feeling, you know, the, the, the power and the pressure of, of, of possible actions that, to be that, that will come to pass. You know, Huntington's is this very, very slow death sentence and a horrible end that it, that it gives as well. People kind of end up, you know, in this very difficult shuddering uh, decline. But at the same time, you know, I mean, this is getting a little bit into the research, but, you know, I, ha I had a very dear friend affected by Huntington's and she, is, she was and she is this, you know, amazing, creative, artistic woman. You know, she was a, a, a major influence on me when I was in my 20s and, um, you know, working in poetry. She, she's, um, you know, she's a visual artist and paints you know, heavily abstracted landscapes. And she's someone who very much lives within the moment and, you know, still does to this day to some degree, even though, you know, her health is, is incredibly difficult. But she, you know, she really has a lot of lessons in that respect. Mm, absolutely. And lessons that I think we forget sometimes in our busy lives. And I think it's so important to, to live in that moment. But it is quite a personal journey for you writing this book how how difficult was that because you were drawing on you know real life people 
Yeah, it was it was certainly a challenge. What I would say is that the the fact that it took so long to write meant that by the time you know by now when it's you know when it's being published i mean this idea first kind of came to me over 10 years ago and i was like and and i was thinking gosh there's just so many rich philosophical questions within just this disease state and you know the its potentialities and you know it's the way in which it takes the body and the mind and the kind of this this idea of overlapping of of you know self and disease and there's there's so many kind of amazing questions within it and they were kind of the beginning and then it's taken a long time to just figure out how to balance the elements and how to get it right mm. I guess and I, I hope I've got it right yeah, you know? no, it's, it's amazing that this novel has lived with you for so long it's incredible yeah I mean I haven't you know I haven't been working on it uh, constantly for 10 years yeah. obviously it's otherwise been... I would have just gone insane <laughs> um you know I, I released the podcast. sitting with you yeah yeah, no, that's right. No, it's been sitting with me and, you know, a lot of it, you know, it started off as well. I had this idea to do with Huntington's and then I, the other part of it in terms of uh, its conception was to do with um, structure. And I had this really specific structure that I wanted for the novel to do with kind of temporal movement mm -hmm. and the way the novel would move and how it would reveal its kind of its worst elements and, and its best elements, I suppose, and how it would kind of open to the reader. You know, I really had this idea of, of something that would kind of like a flower, kind of, you know, slowly kind of opening up and um, rather than rather than something linear, I wanted it to kind of, to reveal itself in, in, in pieces. Mm, that's actually a beautiful way to describe it. Now thinking about, to my reading of it, the idea of that opening of the flower is spot on. It's a really nice analogy of reading that book. Hmm, interesting. Now, the novel uh, asks really interesting questions. I mean, obviously, this has to do with Huntington's disease, where if one of your parents have it, you have a 50% chance of inheriting the disease yourself. But I really am interested in the question for all of us, no matter what, you know, our, our things that we're dealing with is, do you find out if you can? Do you leave it to fate? And even more interestingly, do you let it define you? I find those questions really interesting. How did you explore them and why did you want to explore those questions? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, when I started to do the research, this question of whether you would find out if you've got it was really at the forefront of my mind. And as I was researching, because, you know, my first reaction was very much, well, of course you would. You know, of course you'd want to know what was going to, whether this was kind of living in your cells or not. But then as I started to do the research, you, you recognise that actually people are, you know, whether or not you think it's a good idea to find out or not after the fact is almost entirely determined by whether or not you've got the disease. Exactly. So those people who've actually, you know, come out and they re realise that, no, I, I don't have it and, you know, what a relief. Uh, okay, they're, you know, they've done well, but, but there are people who, who basically were living kind of, you know, they were kind of living their lives and then suddenly they found out. And this was, you know, that news was so devastating that suddenly the life they had was in some respects broken. Mm. And that's really, really interesting to me that just that news is the, is the element that kind of, that can destroy you. Yeah, and absolutely. 
Absolutely, yeah. because if you don't have it, you're, you're that you know fortunate person who doesn't. Well, then you, you're kind of free from it. But like you said, if you do, then everything changes for you, and there's no possibility of you know <laughs> you're not having it. It's a very difficult question to ask, and I, I think as well if 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 you have you know something like you know as terrible as Huntington's disease or something else, how do you not let that define you? I mean, you were talking about your friend who really immerses herself in the world of art, which and lives in the moment, which is absolutely completely admirable and amazing but how do you not let these things define you because you don't want them to define you do you completely no i mean that that's right i mean as as far as um as far as my friends concerned you know it's it's amazing the degree to which you know it's just something that she just you know she just doesn't think about mm-hmm. almost and and laurie my character in the book you know once she gets you know over her kind of um suicidal moment so to speak um you know is someone who follows that kind of pattern. You know, she, she just, she pushes it out of her line. And I think that's, you know, it takes amazing strength to do that, you know. And, and I suppose, you know, more broadly, you know, we're all very complex beings and we all have very different elements and ways in which we engage the world. And some of those elements are potentially things that can define us and we allow to define us. And sometimes they're things which, you know, which don't necessarily have to define us. I mean, and it's, you know, it's obviously with something like Huntington's, it's, you know, this is something that's very foundational. Uh, you know, it's within yourselves, it's determining whether or not, you know, it's determining the moment of your passing to some degree. But at the same time, you know, we're all mortal. We're all going to die. And so why should it define you? Mm. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. And just because you may not have something, you know, like that in your cells, it doesn't mean that, you know, tomorrow is not going to happen for some of us, you know. So that idea of being mortal and that idea of just being in that moment because you don't know what is in store for the next moment gives me anxiety. But it's also very good to really practice living in that moment because what else do we have but this very moment we're in? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And just being present to the moment and you know, present to the world around us, present to nature, you know, all of these, these things are such vital lessons and you're absolutely correct. You know, the world we live in is a very busy place and we're all, you know, we're all anxious about, you know, money and getting ahead and trying, trying to get some version of a career happening and, you know, how we're going to manage to, you know, whatever, pay the rent, you know, pay a mortgage, whatever it is. And so, you know, all of these anxieties can absolutely overcome us sometimes. And just being present to the moment that we're in is a real antidote. And it's a good lesson. And sometimes it's hard, you know, busyness and you've got social media and you've got your phone in your hand and you've got all these things you're going on. And I know I need to practice it myself as well. So I think reading this book hopefully has put me in another good direction of doing that. And hopefully our listeners do, because it's hard to be present in this world. And it, it sounds like a bit of an excuse, but I think it's hard. It is. It's no, it, it's really, really hard. And and I think, you know, it's a constant battle, this need to kind of return to the self in some way, mm. you know, to, to actually come back to, you know, to being, oh, no, I'm actually, you know, I'm a human being, but I'm an animal being and I'm present and I'm breathing. And, you know, actually just breath exercises and meditation and things like this have a huge amount of power to bring us back into the present and just appreciate the moments that, that we're in. And, and so, yeah, I see, I see Laurie as a character who's able to kind of 
teach some of those lessons in her very kind of peculiar way. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea and the way you said returning to self. I love that. I'm going to keep that in my head today. I'm going to try and practice that. (laughs) Now, it is a romp, like we said, it's a romp, page-turning romp with great characters, but you also explore really important issues like climate change and capitalism. I mean, these are really important issues that we're dealing with every day. Tell me about that and why they're important for you to explore in this book. Well, I mean, climate change is something that I've explored in just about, you know, in you know, all of the three books that I've written, you know, climate change is one of the central questions, even if it's at the background of, of the book. And, and in The Fatal Dance, it's very much, you know, at, at the, the background, it's kind of the one of the subtexts that informs what's happening. And, and it does have an effect on the narrative to some degree, but it's mostly, it's mostly kind of there in the background. And, you know, why is it important? Because, you know, we've got, you know, a few decades or, you know, potentially less to act if we're not going to have the world you know literally destroyed you know we are you know we are one of the last generations that has the ability to hold uh, corporations and governments to account and get the kind of changes that are necessary to move towards a, a low carbon future whereby the world isn't doesn't turn into a you know a post-apocalyptic wasteland like you know, there are obviously some scientists who say, no, we've, we've, passed, the, we've passed the threshold and we're all fucked. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's a very helpful um, position regardless of, of whether it's true or not. Um, and it's, I think it must be very difficult being a climate scientist and not giving in to despair. But, you know, climate change is the most pressing issue facing us now. I mean, the question of capitalism obviously uh, ties in with that and kind of rampant capitalism. You know, I'm not, I'm not, a, kind of, I'm not a Marxist or I don't have a, a specific kind of uh, solution to, you know, the, to, the, to issues of capitalism beyond kind of holding governments to account and trying to find ways where we, you know, build um, ethical decision-making into our everyday world and build a kind of an ethics of suffering uh, whereby we acknowledge what we're actually doing to the world and, and acknowledge what we're doing to each other and have that at the forefront of our decision making. Mm. And giving up absolutely is just not an option. You know, whether you've passed right. this imaginary threshold or not, giving up is probably not the answer. I would not no. think. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I mean, yeah, but but neither is kind of, you know, going and, you know, digging a bunker out in, you know, the beyond the mountains in BC and just kind of, you know, Waiting, waiting for it all to, to end and preparing for the end. No, I mean we've got to, you know, we've got to kind of to fight and try to yeah. try to achieve what change we can. So, yeah, I mean it's hard. In, in that respect, it's, it's it, the question is not, you know, not really, you know, why write about climate change, but how is it possible to even write about anything else at the moment? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I always say books have the power to change the world and they absolutely do. I like what you said about how climate, how how climate scientists, how they're not just, you know, in despair all the time, because I think no matter how cynical we are or how busy we are or how much in despair we are, I think humans at our core, we are full of hope. You know, so I, I think that's that's yeah. something that's really good about us. That even though it's you know it's been bleak for all of us with COVID, but we still mm-hmm. hang on to that hope of being free and being okay and seeing our family again. So I think I think that's the good thing about human beings. Even Redmond has a bit of hope occasionally. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> he does from, from time to time. <laughs> time to and time. And one thing about Red, he, he has this kind of um, 
slightly pernicious optimism that you know that everything's gonna everything's gonna come up roses. I love pernicious optimism. <laughs> I do. I love it. No, maybe, it keeps it going, doesn't it? Maybe that's why I aligned with Red. But I think that's that's hit the nail on the head. I just I'm ridiculously naively optimism, and I don't plan on changing that. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. It doesn't just help. You know, keep, keep that optimism and, and hold on to the idea that we can make the world a better place, Absolutely. and we can. Yeah, absolutely, we can. Now, we talked briefly in the beginning, well, I talked about writing style because I just thought your writing style was beautiful and I described it as effortless and literary. How has your style evolved over time? Because it's a beautiful writing style. Thanks. Uh, That's so nice of you to say. Um, Look, I really wanted with this book to break through to something that was really kind of true and that that was the driving force behind a lot of what I was doing. And, and so, I mean, that, that sounds very kind of esoteric, I suppose. I mean, you know, there are there, obviously there, you know, with my background as a poet, I'm interested in, you know, word shapes and, and how kind of, you know, this look at this word and this word and how these, these consonants from this word go kind of slot into this word and, and how these kind of, you know, work in a sentence and, oh, God, I've put a rhyme in there. I better get that out. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously very interested in kind of crafting sentences mm-hmm. in that way. But at the same time, I really didn't want this book to be too lyrical. You know, I wanted it to be not just a romp, but but something that really kind of drove to the heart of what's happening now and, and, you know, drove to the heart of what is, if I can put it like that. And so I suppose I tried to, kept trying to push through to, to the world that we're in. The, the other thing I would say is one of the real pleasures of writing fiction for me, and this is I guess, again, speaks to the poetry uh, background that I've got is, you know, shifting through different points of view allows real scope for literary experimentation and fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, the novel opens with, uh, with Laurie and she's got a specific way of engaging the world and she's there on the beach and she's very kind of open to the sensory phenomena that are about her and, you know, responds to them. And then we move to Redmond, who's got a very different way of reacting to the world and perceiving the world. And he's, you know, and so the language changes with each of those shifts. I mean, the trick is getting it so it still kind of hangs together, I guess. So you've got these kind of various points of view and you're trying to still have them cohere to tell a single story. And so, you know, I've really you know, I enjoyed really hugely, you know, shifting from someone like Redmond, who's so, you know, he's a guy who's just driven by base desires. He's, you know, he just, you know, just thinks about sex the whole time. And, you know, about, you know, it's a book about the body. So there's, you know, there's, it's a book, which is, is, is in part, you know, about sex and, um, and kind of, but also, you know, embodiment in, in its less attractive phases as well you know red's obsessed with his bowels as well, you know, so, you know, and, and and so this you know this is also part of being human you know it's this odd thing that we we're animals and we have all these animal needs but then we have these kind of higher human aspirations that lead us into kind of enormous embarrassment sometimes and, and so you know 
that kind of those collisions are really really interesting and quite fun oh, they really are you know when you look at you know i'm guilty of this you know your insta feed with your beautiful filters and that but at the end of it like where these gross animals <laughs> you know <laughs> it just is so i really like that idea of those collisions together because i think that's what humans struggle with sometimes as well and and i'm a big fan of you know bringing up my children to have no body shame you know because I, I just want them to oh. be you know, saying your bodies are amazing and they're functional and they're beautiful. And I, you know, I don't want them to grow up with, um, you know, that kind of the shame of your body, which I think a lot of people have, I think, because of that collision between the two, which is interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it is interesting. Uh, it, it's funny because, um, you know, and my, my daughter's 10 and, uh, you know, we, we, we're still in a household where kind of people just run around naked and that's kind <laughs> yes, of normal. Yes. And, you know, I grew up in a household like that. And some people, lots of people don't. And it's funny to think about, you know, it's funny, I was just talking earlier about, you know, my, my friend, my late friend, Martin Harrison, the, the poet, and, you know, and, and he grew up in a house and we, we spoke about this once and he was like, the idea of see, seeing his parents naked was this kind of, was, was horrifying. <laughs> and there are lots of people for whom that is still the case. Well, I wasn't going to admit it, Bert, but I have the same household as you. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> like, them off. Yeah, who cares? But yeah. It's funny, but I did read this article that said you really need to um, show them that, you know, the man and the female body, this is particularly about a female body, they change over time. So there's no yeah. ideal, perfect, you know, shape of a woman. A woman's body changes throughout the month. And so I, I really tapped into that. I thought that's really important for both my children to see that, you know, a person's body changes all the time, but as long as you try and keep it healthy and you exercise and you are love and are proud of your body, that's fine. And so I've really tried to instill that in my kids. And I know we've got on this great tangent, but it's important. <laughs> yeah, no, it's relevant. Oh, it, it, it's absolutely relevant because it's a book about the body and it's yeah. a partly a book about shame to do with yeah, the body. absolutely. So, no, no, it's, it, it's true. No, my, you know, I, I think about my daughter and she's, um, you know, like... <laughs> Run naked people. I actually think I've instilled too much body confidence in my kids. I'm like, oh, no, you can put your clothes on now, guys. People are coming over. <laughs> Gone too far on the other side of the spectrum. <laughs> now, you are an impressive human. You're a novelist, a poet, photographer, academic, and, you know, your wife, Tara Moss, extremely talented author. I've spoken to her in episode 133. But what I want to know is this, this household, which we've just touched on, but in a different way, What's it like living with another creative person? Do you always, are you always bouncing ideas off each other? Do you really get immersed in the creativity? How does this work? Yeah, it changes from day to day depending on where we are in different creative projects, I suppose. So, you know, it goes from extreme neurosis and anxiety in certain <laughs> stages of a project into, you know, the, the kind of euphoria of, you know, a well-constructed sentence back into anxiety and despair <laughs> because no, it's all terrible. And, you know, so, so part of the answer to the question is, is that it's a bit of a seesaw that follows the, I don't know, the vagaries of your creative process. Mm. So that is certainly a factor. I will say, you know, in general, it's great to live with another writer because, you know, generally Tara and I, don't share a lot of work mm -hmm. uh, unless something until it's published so you know i, I wow. don't take the, you know she I've, I've given her this book uh you know just it just arrived about a week ago and uh, and at the same time 
her new manuscript arrived, like literally within the same, I think it was the next day that she's working on her, I don't think I'm allowed to say the title yet, but the part two in her Bully Walker uh, series. And so she, she kind of read the first chapter and then has disappeared into her own book because she's just got the edits back and she literally, you know, you know what it's like when you, when you hit the stage, you literally, you can't think about anything else. I mean, there's no space for creative reading, really. I mean, depending on what kind of writer you are, some, some people kind of, you know, work in the morning and then read in the afternoon or, or what have you, but, but not our household. <laughs> so, so, yeah, no, it, it's, it's a strange kind of seesaw. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I, lo- I love that because I think a lot of people who don't write, they don't understand, A, the anxiety and the despair and all those seesaw emotions, but they don't understand how much time it takes. You know, when you say to people it can take years and years to write a novel, people are like, oh, can't you just write it over the Christmas break? Like, it's hard for people to grasp that if they've not written something or tried to write something, do you think? Yeah. You're still well, writing that. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, some, I mean, some novelists do. Like, you know, famously, mm. Ian Fleming would, would go and I spent... You know, every every year he'd, he'd take, I think, 60 days, is it, to, you know, he'd go and go to the Bahamas or something and, you know, sip, um, sip cocktails and, and knock out the next James Bond. Um, I'm not that kind of writer. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe that's what you do for your next process. Take yourself to the Bahamas for 60 days and see if it works. Yeah. No, I, I <laughs> it's really funny because before I, when I'd finished Beyond the Frame's Edge, and before I decided I really had to get my poetry manuscript out and I started on, on this novel, I was really determined that this would be simple. And before I kind of got the plan and realised how what it was coming into. But I, I was like, okay, I want to write this book and it's going to be, you know, I'll just set it over, you know, over a week and I'll, I'll you know, it'll be, I'll just, you know, start at the beginning and move through. <laughs> I love that. And that oh, it's, going to be, it's going to be great. I'm going to knock it over in six months. And, uh, you know, hello, uh, you know, 10 years later, you know, welcome. Uh, it's, it's finally published. See, that's optimism. You know, when you were first went into the novel, that's that's yeah. a great, excellent example of optimism. About yeah. the, the last question that I ask everyone on this podcast is why do you write? Because it makes me want to live. Um, I kind of feel like writing answers the question of, the meaning of life for me, you know, I, I, it, it's, you know, the world is such a, you know, a beautiful place. And the idea of being able to take some of that beauty and recreate it in a way that someone else can understand is a transcendent idea to me, you know, and in the same way that, you know, it, it, it's very different, but, you know, I work in photography and, as well and and you know it's about in photography you're playing with light and so you're trying to get someone to see the light in the way that you're seeing it with writing it's much more complex obviously and and it's much more of a kind of drawn out process and and it's much less kind of technically driven and and different in you know all kinds of fundamental ways but there's this similarity to do with kind of oh wow that's so beautiful if only I could get someone else to see that little moment of beauty oh, as well, then, you know, then that makes sense of life to me. Mm, I love that a lot. I love that a lot. And there's a few things that I've just loved what you said about, you know, having to answer those questions and writing being, you know, the reason for living and the way you said you just wanted to put something true on the page. 
And that really resonates with me because when you read literature, sometimes, like you said, it is too lyrical and lyrical in a way that gets in the way of all the questions and the meaning and the character that, that you want to try to get through, you know, and I find that frustrating these days because I just want to get to the heart of the story. And when it is too lyrical, I find that really difficult now. Maybe it's because I'm getting older. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, no, just give me the heart of the story. Yeah. So when you said, you know, part of your writing style was about putting something true on the page, you know, then I put another great advice I've got from Trent Dalton is to put your heart and soul on the page. So if you do those three things, your heart and your soul and, and truth, I mean, you're going to get something amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, I, or, or you'll get something that's overridden and appalling. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get a diary. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Dear diary. Um, yeah, yeah, no, a lot of teenagers. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, or, or what I would say is it's impossible perhaps to make good art without doing that. Yes, you know? absolutely. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily guarantee success because there's lots of incredibly bad, incredibly sincere poetry out there. Um, but without... You know, without striving for that, then even if you're writing, you know, something, you know, satirical and, um, you know, I've been reading Pasternak lately and, you know, he's, you know, he's a very kind of edgy writer and, you know, satirical, funny, all of that. Um, but even there, what he's still trying to get, get put, put a real, get through to a, a certain truth that isn't necessarily apparent. Yeah, absolutely. And, I think, and that's I think important. Yeah, I think you said it absolutely right, that you can't create art without those things. I think that's absolutely right, and I love that. Look, thank you so much for your time. I think I could have spoken to you all day about this stuff, but I will let you go. <laughs> but what an absolute pleasure to speak to you all the way from Canada to Australia about your beautiful and compelling novel, The Fatal Dance, a great romp, but also quite literary and beautifully, beautifully written. So thank you so much for exploring all of those things we did and for putting that book into my hands. I should thank Collins for that. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Dan. Great. We did it. Easy. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. We'd love to engage with you on social media. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Danny V Books, Words and Nerds podcast. You can also subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Stay safe and read more books.